So today I'm going to um, talk more about the idea of, of radical attention and how that is tied into the idea of mindfulness. But before doing that, I'd like to go back to the last question from yesterday's discussion. And, and that is, how, how, how do we trust, how do we somehow distinguish between which texts or passages one would feel more confident in regarding as the word of the Buddha, as opposed to less confident? You see, one criticism that um, I've received in, in my work is people say, oh, you just pick and choose the bits of the canon you like, and then you base everything just on your own personal preferences. Which is a, if that were true, that would be a perfectly legitimate um, uh, criticism. So clearly, if one is going seriously to make some claim that this is what the Buddha taught, then one needs more than just one's own subjective preferences to guide one. Now this leads us into um, a rather arcane discipline which is called hermeneutics, which is basically the, the, the inquiry into how we interpret texts. Now I'm not going to get any further into that than what I've just said. But what it boils down to is that to make a claim such as the Buddha said, we need to be able to have certain criteria that um, we can uh, fall back on to explain why we're confident that the Buddha might have said that. So let me just outline what my own hermeneutic is, the principle behind my interpretations. And it's quite simple, really. Um, Anything that one finds in the Pali Canon that could just as well have been said by a Brahmin priest of the Buddha's time or a Jain monk or some other teacher. In other words, anything that uh, falls within the broad understanding of the world that people had in the 5th century BC in North India, that can, I think, quite um, uh, justifiably be put to one side. It's not to say that the Buddha didn't believe that or didn't say it, but it's not something that's characteristic or original in his teaching. So, When you find a passage where the Buddha is declaring that if you commit this kind of action, you'll be reborn in this realm or that realm, we can put that to one side. That would be characteristic of the discourse of that time. When the Buddha talks about his teaching leading to the ending of the cycle of death and rebirth, well, that happens to be the aim of the Hinduism and Jainism as well. So, politely put that to one side. 
when the Buddha talks of different gods appearing and disappearing, <clears throat> again, that's very typical of the language of that period. You put it to one side. And in doing this process of subtraction, you then ask yourself, well, and then having subtracted all of those things, in other words, everything that could have been said by a Brahmin priest or a Jain monk, what's left? What stands out as something original and distinctive in the canon that you cannot derive from the Upanishads or the Vedas or the Jain Sutras? And tentatively, I would argue that there are four uh, things that remain. The first of these is the principle of conditionality, or what is often translated as dependent origination or conditioned arising. In other words, what is striking about what the Buddha or the protagonist of these texts um, teaches that is distinctive is that there's no room for any kind of ultimate um, uh, unchanging, unconditioned reality, whether you call that Brahman or God um, or whatever. But the Buddha's teaching, or the protagonist in these texts' teachings, is one that is constantly acknowledging the conditional nature of all experience and all life, and so forth and so on. Nothing arises without a cause, without a condition, and the practice of the Buddha's teaching is very much based on understanding the conditional and the causal matrix and nexus of life such that one can begin then to make changes. One can begin to uh, remove conditions that are causing problems, enhance conditions that improve the values of awareness and wisdom and so on. The second point um, is a, a distinctive process that is characteristic and that frames um, the Buddha's teaching, and that is the process of what are traditionally called the Four Noble Truths, but I'll explain this later in more detail, what I prefer to call the Four Noble Tasks, which are embracing dukkha, or experience, or life, letting go of grasping, experiencing cessation or stopping of grasping, and then creating and cultivating a path, a way of life. Now that model too, we won't find, as far as I'm aware, in any of the other uh, teachings which would have been prevalent at the Buddhist period. The third point is the particular kind of practice of meditation that the Buddha taught, and that is that of mindfulness and awareness, which again you don't find elsewhere. Um, in the Brahmanic and uh, Jain traditions, meditation is generally about turning the mind inwards in order to reach the primary essence of your own being, 
your Atman, your soul, your radiant divine consciousness, or something that is unconditioned and unmoving and um, absolute. The Buddha turns that on its head, as we'll see um, today, and and, and makes meditation into a practice of attending to the, um, the conditioned world alone, the body, the feelings, mental states, and so on. In other words, meditation is turned towards the totality of experience, which is the kind of practice we're doing on these retreats, rather than seeking out some privileged religious object, such as an ultimate truth of some kind, and seeking to gain insight into that through meditation, but rather it's about opening up an encompassing experience from a much wider frame of reference. In other words, it's about an engagement with the phenomenal world rather than an an attempt to break through into some noumenal reality. And the fourth um, distinctive feature, I would argue, is the emphasis on a self-reliance rather than on becoming um, uh, or surrendering one's authority to that of a guru or um, uh, some kind of you know, final text or some revelation. But the Buddha systematically encourages his followers to become, the word he uses in Pali is, is aparapatsaya, not dependent on others. Aparapatsaya, not other dependent. And this is famously um, enunciated shortly before the Buddha dies when he says to Ananda, you should be islands to yourselves, uh, lamps to yourselves, with no other refuge. So this is another thread that runs through uh, the canon, which is not derivable from the broad religious culture of that time in India. It's very much about a practice, a way of looking at the world, a process of engaging with life and craving and so on, that leads you to increasing autonomy in in your own practice. But we're going to come back to all of these points again. But just to go over that again, there are four points which conveniently and maybe slightly cheekily, we could call the four P's, the principle of conditionality. The process of these four tasks or truths. The practice of mindful awareness. And the power of self-reliance. Now, I guess the challenge, my challenge at least as a, a Buddha-logian, is, uh, is, is okay, let's say you've, you've done this little party game of teasing out these elements of the text, but what you're left with, is that sufficient to, um, 
provide an adequate ethical, philosophical and practical framework for living your life? Can you get away with just those four things? Don't you need some grander vision of endless lifetimes and laws of karma and so on? And I would argue that you don't. That on the basis of those four Ps, we can arrive at a thoroughly um, adequate basis for living a spiritual or a religious life. Again, one could be suspicious of what I'm doing because it seems to play into my own interests. Because what I conclude to be original and distinctive in the Buddha's teaching is actually the the secular elements. In other words, conditionality, the practice of the four tasks, the practice of mindfulness, uh, self-reliance, all of this um, does not require us to adopt any metaphysical beliefs, any kind of typically religious doctrines. It's very much about how to, it's a, it's a framework, it's a, a model uh, that suggests this is how you can live fully in this world In other words, it's a secular approach. Before we go on, also another point that's perhaps worth looking at, and that is this problematic word, the Buddha, which was so widely used, and I use it myself, that we often forget that that term is never actually used in the Pali Canon to refer to the Buddha. The Pali Canon simply doesn't use that language, the Buddha. That's a Western invention, actually. Now, an awful lot of of associative baggage comes with that. Uh, The Buddha is actually not a name, it's an epithet. In other words, it means the awakened one. It's presenting this person as, uh, uh, in in a kind of symbolic way, ideal as someone who is totally awake and again I'm not going to dispute that but nonetheless it frames everything with a sort of authority that comes from a person who might be omniscient or something and in fact in most Buddhist traditions the Buddha is regarded as omniscient more or less the Theravadins don't quite say that So in other words, you have a figure raised somewhat to the level of a god. And that, I think, reinforces the sense that we're dealing with a religious revelation of some kind, delivered by some exceptional, maybe not even fully human being, something more than human, almost. So how do the texts... Um, when they refer to the Buddha, what do they call him? Well, there are three terms. And the first two, well, the first one particularly, we can bracket off and put aside, and that is the word Bhagavat. It means, it's usually translated as the Blessed One. Now, why they do that, I'm not quite sure. Um, Bhagavat is actually, again, a common Indian 
epithet, and it would be more accurate to translate it as something like the Lord. But even that carries resonances that are not really appropriate, I think, to the text. I think really what it just means is the teacher, with a capital T, if you wish. And what we find, actually, is when the Buddha, in inverted commas, is referred to in the third person, in other words, when other people talk about him, especially his followers, they refer to him as the teacher. And again, the blessed one carries with it so much religiosity, it makes me cringe slightly. So in other words, the Bhagawat, as even in India today, a guru is called Bhagwan. Back in the 70s, you had Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. It's the same word, Bhagwan. It just is an epithet given to a, a religious or a spiritual teacher. So again, nothing distinctively Buddhist about it. We put it to one side. The other term that's used um, is the Tathagata. Now, this is much more problematic. It's a very odd word, and I don't really want to tease it apart now. Um, but I think we can say that, broadly speaking, it's the way the Buddha refers to himself. Instead of saying, I, he, often, he does say I very often, but on many occasions you hear him saying, the Tathagata, which means I, or one it literally means something like thus gone, literally, um, without getting into the technicalities of Pali. My sense is it means something like the one who's here. Something like this one. And again, I find it actually quite difficult um, to imagine uh, someone actually talking that way. So I suspect Tathagata, again, might have been a term which was introduced later, maybe to avoid having the Buddha to you know, speak in terms of himself like anybody else would. In the same way, I suspect Bhagavat, likewise, might have also been emphasized in order to give greater authority to this figure. But the third term that's used, and it's certainly used by people who are not followers of the Buddha. But you find it repeatedly in the text, and this is this expression, Bo Gotama. Gotama is his family name, and Bo is usually translated as Master Gotama. But again, that's not quite correct. The word Bo um, is again a, a title, but it just means Mr. Mr. Gotama. Um, it doesn't have anything highfalutin about it at all. In fact, it's slightly derogatory. The, the Brahmins, for example, are sometimes called Bovardin, which means those who use the word Mr. in referring to people lower than themselves. Those who use the word Mr. Hey, Mr., could you go and do that for me? So what's striking about that particular term is that at this level at least, the Buddhist tradition um, 
um, uh, preserved a way of speaking that is almost counter-edifying, counter-religious, just plain Mr. Gautama. So I'm going to try and introduce that. Um, funnily enough, this, um, this point was made by uh, the scholar Rupert Gethin in his anthology of translations of the Pali Canon in the Oxford Classics series. And he starts out by saying, well, actually, in the canon, the Buddha is referred to as Mr. Gautama. But, of course, we can't say that, so he doesn't. Well, my initial reaction was, well, why not? Again, this would have a somewhat, it would certainly help in trying to highlight the secularity of the teachings, to talk of Mr. Gautama. Again, it sounds, it sounds strange, but once you, you start getting used to it, it begins to catch on. I guarantee by the end of the week, we'll all be saying Mr. Gautama. <laughs> but I think it's a good example, as with the example yesterday about Yoniso Manasikara, wise attention, that the tradition tends to want to find a language that presents the teachings and the figures in the best possible kind of spiritual light. And to do so will ignore or will somehow modify uh, the actual language of the texts. The strange thing is when you go back to the actual Pali uh, language itself, uh, you often find that um, the words being used are a bit, you know, not quite like the way they're translated. The translation brings in a bias, an emphasis, that's not always there in the early texts. So let's go back then to this idea of, um, of radical attention. It suggests, of course, that we can also speak of, 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 of superficial attention. And this actually works quite well. The, the, the Buddha uses, uh, sorry, Mr. Gautama uses both terms. He will say, um, Yoniso Manasikara, radical attention, but also you'll find A Yoniso Manasikara, which means non-radical attention. Um, we might call it superficial attention. And in one passage in the Sanyutta, um, he, he says a person who, is, who, who pays superficial attention is someone who is always being eaten up by their thoughts. Eaten up. Or we'd say perhaps consumed by thinking. Eaten up. Chewed up, one translator puts it. Now, I think that's very, very suggestive. I don't know whether when you meditate you have this problem, but <laughs> whether it's in meditation or whether it's in daily life, sometimes one does feel that one is literally in the... Uh, one is literally being endlessly consumed and swallowed up. One's attention is being consumed, one's awareness is being consumed by this compulsive monologue of ideas and thoughts that sort of constantly is pushing you forward somewhere. 
So in other words, radical attention is to somehow break the spell of whatever it is that eats us up um, and somehow thereby uh, pulls us away from or removes us from an immediate attention to what is actually going on. Now there's a dialogue in the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, chapter 22, between um, Sariputta, who's Mr. Gautama's prominent uh, sort of house intellectual almost, one might say, uh, considered to be the, the most intelligent and wise of the followers. And another monk called Mahakotita, who again is a very scholarly sort of figure. And throughout the canon you get dialogues between Sariputta and Mahakotita. They're very revealing actually. A famous sequence is found in, Mar- in Majjama Nikaya uh, 43, which is literally a set of questions and answers between these two. But I- in the Sangyuta 22 section, Mahakotita actually asks Sariputta, in what do you pay radical attention to? You know, what is this radical attention? He actually asks him to define it. And this is um, Sariputta's answer. He says one should pay radical attention to one's body, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, consciousness. In other words, the five aggregates or bundles, which are shorthand for the totality of our experience. One should pay radical attention to one's experience as being impermanent, as being dukkha, as being empty, and as being not self. So what's, um, I think, striking here is radical attention. It's not just kind of eyeballing things more intensely, but it's actually deliberately... uh, making an effort to see our experience as changing, as dukkha, as empty, as anatta, or not-self. So it is um, a practice of learning to attend to features of experience that we tend to overlook, And one might argue that superficial attention is attention that doesn't pay any heed at all to those features of experience. In other words, in the process of getting through day to day, doing our job, earning our living, etc., etc., we're often focused on things other than the impermanence, the dukkha, the emptiness, the not-self nature of our experience. We don't have time for that. We've got other priorities. Fair enough. But if we wish to start addressing the sorts of questions that Buddhism and other traditions um, consider more primary, what is the meaning of life? How can I live with greater freedom? How can I find wisdom? A more loving heart? Whatever. Then... 
the idea is to radicalize attention, to start noticing experience as characterized by transience, tragedy, emptiness, selflessness. So it's an attention to things as. Now, Sariputta then concludes that if you do this, it will lead to dwelling happily in this very life, to mindfulness and full awareness. So it's interesting that he sees this radical attention or the radicalizing of attention as what actually then serves to cultivate mindfulness and awareness. And also that brings you into a more contented uh, quality of experience. So in other words, although we can loosely use terms like mindfulness, awareness, attention as synonymous, they're also seen to somehow mutually support one another. And at least from the passage I've just read, it suggests that in a way the practice begins with the radicalization of attention. And that is the basis for the practice of mindfulness and awareness. So let's then move on to the practice of of mindfulness. I'm going to actually follow here broadly the outline of the Satipatthana Sutta. But first, again, I'm going to pick a text from somewhere else, again from the Sangyuta Nikaya, from section uh, 54. And here we have a a curious exchange where... um, one of the Buddha's... uh, one of Mr. Gautama's followers um, goes up to him and, and, and asks him a question. And the question has to do with, as you're probably aware, during the monsoon periods in India, um, it was impossible to wander around from village to village any longer. And, and the monks and the nuns and the followers and so on would stay in these groves and parks for about two or three months. It's still called the Vasa the rains retreat. And they would, you know, they would have discussions and they would do a lot of meditation and, and so forth and so on. And inevitably people would ask, well, what does this Gautama guy do? Surely if he's an awakened one, why does he have to meditate? Or if he does meditate, what kind of meditation does he do? So someone brings this to Mr. Gautama and... Um, Ask, well, how do we answer this question? And this is his answer. He says, during, you should tell these people that during the rain's retreat, he generally dwells in concentration through mindfulness of breathing. Now, again, you may find this slightly uh, surprising. I found it slightly surprising when I read this. Um, because what he does is, of course, single out the practice which we consider to be the most basic, very often, uh, the starting point, as it were, you know, meditation 101, watch the breath. And here we have 
this person who is supposedly fully awake and enlightened. And what does he do during when he sits on his cushion? He practices mindfulness of the breathing. And then he explains why, why uh, he gives such importance to that. And he says, for if one could say of anything, this is a noble abode, this is a sacred abode, this is a Tathagata's abode, it is of concentration through mindfulness of breathing that one could truly say this. Now, in other words, he, he, he understands mindfulness of breathing as a kind of dwelling. Uh, the word is vihara, sometimes translated as monastery, but actually it just means dwelling, vihara. And the second of the three terms he uses is brahma vihara, which is usually translated as divine abode or divine abiding. And... Classically, there are four divine abidings. There is loving-kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, as I'm sure you're aware. So it's rather striking that he also um, includes mindfulness of breathing as a Brahma-vihara, as a divine abode, as a sacred abode, as a dwelling of a Buddha, uh, of a noble dwelling. So he puts it very much on the same level as love, uh, compassion, uh, joy in the well-being of others, and of course also equanimity. Now, I think it would be a mistake, though, to then say, well, this, therefore, is the highest meditation you can be doing. I don't think he's saying here that this is a meditation that's somehow superior to everything else. I think what is probably the case is that he's recognizing um, that it is the, the foundation and the core of all the other contemplative and meditative exercises that he teaches, that they're all somehow grounded on or founded on the meditation on the breath. But by including it as a Brahma-vihara, I think it's more than just a kind of ability or proficiency to remain focused on certain sensations in the body over a duration of time. It's not some technical achievement that you can get by just doing it well enough. It suggests to me very much that to concentrate on the breath uh, is to ground oneself in the pulse of life itself. It's to feel the same heartbeat or, or rhythm that animates all living beings. In other words, it allows us to open up to and to discover an empathetic rapport with everything else that breathes. So I wonder if, in fact, it's a, it, it, is in, it is, as it were, a foundation for empathy. 
that just as I breathe, so do you breathe. Just as my primary relationship with this world, this environment, is through my breath, so is yours. What sort of holds us together at a very visceral, at a very primary, um, uh, in a very primary way, is our interbreathing, our connectivity with the environment, with the biosphere, with other forms of life. So breathing, therefore, becomes, I feel, uh, a way of entering into participation with the wider experience of the world. Now, another um, thing that uh, we will find at the beginning of pretty much every text on meditation is an instruction or a suggestion to go into a forest to sit at the root of a tree or in an empty hut. Uh, In other words, to withdraw from the hustle and the bustle of one's daily life. And we find, again, um, another question-answer between Mahakotita and Sariputta. Uh, And Mahakotita is asking Sariputta about the freedom of mind through the experience of emptiness. And he asks what this is. And, And Sariputta replies... When one has gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or an empty hut, one thinks all this is empty of self or what belongs to a self. This is the freedom of mind through emptiness. What this suggests to me very much is that the, the reason for going into the forest is not just in order to get away from the hustle and the bustle of the monastery or the town or other people, but it is also to find oneself or place oneself in an, uh, an environment that is not owned by human beings, uh, an environment that is, as we would call today, wild, it's wilderness of course there's very little wilderness left in our world but certainly at this time you know, as soon as you got away from the village or the towns, you were in a kind of unowned wilderness in North India and this becomes a metaphor for emptiness, in other words the, uh, the, the fact that intrinsically this these trees, these birds, these deer, as well as this body, these feelings, these perceptions, are not um, under the ownership or the possession or the control of any human agent or uh, body of people. So the wilderness, the forest, becomes a metaphor for considering our own experience, our own bodies, our feelings, and so on that they too are empty of anything intrinsic to Stephen or to Joanna or whoever it might be. Uh, 
I feel that's an important point somehow, to, to acknowledge the, the power of the natural environment as a way to bring us into a reflective frame of mind which helps us be attentive in a more radical way to our own bodies, our own feelings, and so on. And as we're probably aware, it's from the point where you sit and in this forest you pay attention to your breathing, to your in-breath, to your out-breath, whether you're breathing long or short, until you get to the point where you are aware of the whole body. In other words, you realize that breathing is not just an activity you feel in your lungs or your throat or your tummy, but somehow is a tidal movement that characterizes your physical existence as a totality. And so we find this phrase... I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe in and out calming the body's inclination to breathe. In other words, um, aware of the breath not as a, a, a particular detail of your experience but actually as constitutive of what it is to be embodied. To be embodied is to, be, is to breathe. And again, I suspect if you've done this sort of meditation, you've noticed this, that you may start out you know, occasionally catching your breath at your nostrils. And as, the, as you calm down, as the breathing becomes more regular and deep, you begin to notice how the act of breathing in Incorporates the whole of your physical experience and the whole of your uh, connectivity with, I mean, literally the air, obviously, but if we think that through a bit further, the air which is produced by the photosynthesis of the leaves and the grasses and so on, it is, of course, your, your embeddedness in what um, Merleau-Ponty, the French philosopher, calls the flesh of the world. So this kind of radical attention is far more than just becoming proficient in certain sort of techniques. That's important too. I don't want to, to sort of under, to diminish that. But the point of, the, uh, of becoming good at meditating is not an end in itself but it's uh, a means to further radicalize attention so that we begin to live, as it were, uh, from, a, from, from, from the belly, from the womb, rather than from the head. And again, it's not a passive experience. It's not just about being completely still and quiet and just having a kind of choiceless awareness of what's going on. That's part of it. But in the next section of the Satipatthana Sutta that I'm following, Mr. Gautama compares a person who's doing this meditation to um, a skilled wood turner. 
Um, he, he says, just as a skilled woodturner um, knows the effect of a certain movement of his hands on the lathe or the wood and what that will produce as a result, um, in the same way, a person who cultivates mindful attention um, is likewise um, engaged in a sort of exploratory and potentially transformative relationship with what it is that we're being conscious of. The metaphor of the woodturner does not imply a sort of stepping back and just noticing what's happening. It's an engagement, it's a participation, it's a, an involvement with experience that can have a transformative effect on it, just as a person with a lathe effects a transformation on a piece of wood. So again, this comes back to pointing out how mindful attention involves a kind of uh, noticing of what's going on that has a kind of penetrative quality. We look into what's going on. We feel into what's happening. All of this being supported by concentration, being more stable, more attentive. But it's, it's an engagement with our life, an engagement with our body, an engagement with our feelings. And it leads to certain decisions. It leads to a certain choice to live one way as opposed to another. And as we'll see later, the mindful awareness is something that um, is, is described as the first of the seven factors of awakening, which is also included in this practice of mindfulness. And that leads to um, investigation. Um, it stimulates a kind of energetic application to what you're doing, which leads to a sense of delight, a sense of tranquility, a sense of concentration, and finally equanimity. So subjectively, in other words, in terms of the quality of the meditator's experience, mindfulness is the first step that helps us inquire, that helps us um, somehow become fascinated to such an extent that we're drawn more deeply into this practice itself. It is delightful. It brings a certain sense of, of joy, of well-being. And at the same time, it also leads to increasing inner stability, tranquility, focus and equanimity. And at the same time, and again, I'm just following the sequence of the text, it's not something we do just when we're sitting down on a cushion in a retreat. And, I mean, the text itself says, when walking, one understands, I'm walking. When standing, one understands, I'm standing. When lying down, I'm lying down. And then... In the next passage, we get this extended, and I referred to this yesterday, but I'll read out the whole text. I've secularized and regendered it. 
She is one who acts with full awareness when leaving and returning, when looking ahead and looking back, when flexing and extending her limbs, when wearing her clothes and carrying her bag, when eating, drinking, consuming, tasting, when shitting and pissing, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. So in other words, the kind of attention, this radical attention, this this mindful uh, investigation of things is something that has just as much to do with the performance of everyday tasks and acts as it does with uh, formal uh, sitting on a cushion for 40 or 45 minutes. The importance of the formal training, of course, is that it familiarizes ourselves with uh, these qualities of mind so that we can apply them in other contexts. And as I mentioned, I think, yesterday, it turns a retreat into a kind of laboratory-type situation where we cultivate certain skills in a somewhat artificial environment. And again, the purpose is in order to bring those qualities of mind into the whole of our life. It's not about renunciation, cutting oneself off, removing oneself from the world. And if one does those things, which often are necessary, it's for the purpose of engagement with life, not to sort of keep um, you know, privileging uh, solitude and silence and so on. The text also speaks of how this mindfulness of the body is also an, uh, an awareness of other people's bodies. Uh, it's becoming uh, more attuned to uh, the, the poignant uh, physical presence of others, the way others, we, we, we witness others' bodies in the way that they move, the way a person inhabits a body, their body language we sometimes speak of, the way a person's eyes and mouth and face a signal, emotion, or pleasure, or pain, or fear. And then, of course, we find these passages that follow where we look into our own body. And the classic description is that one scans the body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head, recollecting, and now we get one of, these, one of the longer Buddhist lists, Head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, stomach contents, feces, bile, phlegm, bus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. (laughs) Now, Now, I don't think we necessarily have to pay attention to each particular one. The point is to... uh, to recollect, to remember that we are a bag of bones and lots of other stuff. And again, it's not something obviously we can see directly you know, in our inner eye, but it's hardly um, 
a surprise that um, the the Buddha attends to this um, rather honest awareness of the actual stuff of our physical existence. And of course in his day, uh, the monks would often go to burial grounds and actually meditate on corpses as they bloat and rot and so forth and so on as birds and jackals and so forth eat them up. So there's a very unromantic, unsentimental uh, awareness of the body. And as one does this, you know, for example, when you're looking at the bodies in the graveyard, you keep referring back to yourself and recognizing that my body is also like this. It's not exempt from the same fate. So in this sense, mindfulness of the body is about going beyond the revulsion we might feel about uh, some of the less attractive parts inside. And also an openness in a very immediate way to the anticipation of its death and its disintegration. Again, things we tend not to pay attention to. So radical attention is, in a way, having the courage uh, to, to, to look unsentimentally at our physical existence. We then move on to, as you know, the awareness of our own feelings, uh, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings <coughs> that I'm not going to go into here. Martin will almost certainly talk about that. And we also start to pay more attention through mindfulness to uh, our states of mind. You know, whether we're feeling distracted or whether we're feeling focused, whether we're feeling full of you know, desire or fear or hatred. So the mindfulness, once it's established itself in the breath, in the body, we then turn it to highlight and be aware of the mental uh, psychic qualities of our experience, which are much more difficult to pin down in any way. But what is curious is that it doesn't stop there. The, the first three foundations of mindfulness are body, feelings, and mind. And that's quite straightforward. But that brings us to the fourth uh, foundation of mindfulness, which is much more tricky to understand. And it's called uh, mindfulness of dhammas, dharmas. Now, usually this means mindfulness. Dharmas refers to the, those things that we're aware of, but not through our physical senses, but through our mental sense. So in other words, all of our inner states, our feelings, our perceptions, our fears. Um, and also, of course, we're aware of concepts and ideas and memories and plans and things that preoccupy us a great deal. But we know these things not through our eyes, our ears, our noses, our tongues, our bodies, but through what we call our minds. So the fourth grounding of mindfulness 
leads us to a consideration, I think, essentially of the guiding ideas of the Dharma. Uh, we're running out of time now, so I'm not going to have, I'm not going to go over this now, but tomorrow. Just to mention what the Dhammas are, um, mindfulness of the Dhammas has, um, I think, four or five sets. The first is um, the hindrances, to be mindful of what obstructs us or hinders us in our practice. Traditionally, this is attachment, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt. But I think that's just, well, that's just a starting point. In other words, we become mindful of whatever it is that kind of holds us back. And as I mentioned yesterday, this brings us to the idea of Mara, the devil. And so either tomorrow or the next day we'll look more closely at that. But the Dharmas also include the five aggregates, which, have, which I've just mentioned refers to the totality of experience. You then find the six senses. In other words, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. Once again, a a way of parsing uh, the totality of our experience. Then you have the, uh, the seven factors of awakening. And finally, you have the four noble tasks. So the practice of mindfulness actually culminates in the process of the four noble truths slash tasks. And my sense is that the the, the whole of the Satipatthana Sutta is a kind of user's manual for practicing the four tasks. That's quite explicitly where the practice is said to conclude... Or, or, or to lead to. And I think what it suggests is that mindfulness is thereby about not just being more aware of our breath and our body and our feelings, but being increasingly um, uh, conscious of what it is that we most deeply value, of what it is that we seek to um, realize in the course of our lives, which is framed in this notion of the four noble truths slash tasks. But I'll stop there, and tomorrow um, we'll have another look at at this fourth foundation of mindfulness on the Dhammas, and then I'll go into the mindfulness of uh, the hindrances. Uh, what it is that somehow blocks and prevents us from practicing, uh, what it is that is a kind of sort of inner death that is often extremely difficult to really disentangle ourselves from. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.